It's a great question to ask ourselves this morning. Whose are we? Are we His? And that's really what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, 1 John at the end of chapter 2, and then we're going to be going into chapter 3. But the, the major theme this morning that we're going to talk about is family likeness. You know, whose family are we in? You know, who, who is our father? What type of family likeness is being shown in our lives? You know, if you've ever had anyone ask you, or maybe they've said to you, you know, you look like your mother, or you look like your father, or maybe you look like your grandmother or your grandfather. You know, we all know and we've all experienced ways that we are like our family. You know, before we moved down here last summer, we came down for a visit, and we were visiting a few schools that our kids uh, would, would possibly go to, and we went to one school, and they were giving us the tour around the school, and you know, we were just able to see everything, and where they, where they have lunch, and where the office is, and where they have the playground, which is very important, obviously, and Things like that. And then my, my son was going into the fourth grade at the time. And so we went to the fourth grade teacher's classroom. And so we went to her classroom. And we got the brief introductions and whatnot. And then she just really looked at my son. She just kind of really focused in on him. And then she turned and looked at me. And it was one of those looks. And you've given this look before. It's a look that says, okay, I think I know who you are. But I don't know how I know who you are. <laughs> it's one of those looks. So it's a look of familiarity. Okay, I think I know you, but I'm not sure how I know you. Well, as we began to talk, we, we find out that she lived behind a person that she went to school with. Well, that person was my father. And the way she was able to pull this needle out of the haystack is she looked at my son, and then she looked at me, and she said, You have those Jones eyes. You know, because everyone on my father's side has blue eyes. Everybody. And so she knew my father, she knew my grandfather has blue eyes. My father, blue eyes. I have blue eyes. My son has blue eyes. And so that's how she was able to say, family likeness. You know, you must be one of those Jones boys, you know, got those blue eyes. And so, but we all have these, these physical qualities or maybe habits that could be traced back to our family. You know, this family likeness that we have. And as we move into chapter 3 of 1 John this morning, we're going to see him stress what should be true of you if you are part of the family of God. If you are in the family of God, what, what does that look like? How do, you, how do you have this family likeness that tells who your family truly is? And he'll also tell us if we are members of the family of the devil. And so he's going to give us quite the contrast here as we walk through this chapter. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to start at the end of chapter 2 in verse 28. And we're going to work our way through chapter 3 verse 10. And if you don't have a Bible, there's actually one right in the pew in front of you that we'd love for you to use. And this is what John writes beginning in verse 28 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in me, so that when he appears, he may have confidence, or we may have confidence, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now up to this point, John has spent the first two chapters telling his readers that if you have saving faith in Jesus Christ, there should be certain things that are true of your life. He says that you, know, you should be confessing your sin to God. You should be growing in your obedience to God. You should be growing in your love for one another. And you should be holding to the truth about who Christ is. And in our passage this morning, John is going to revisit what is true of the person who is in Christ, but in a slightly different way. And what he's going to do is he's going to give us two benchmarks. He's going to give us two benchmarks to help orient us, to help us see who we're supposed to be as children of God. Now, you may be asking, what do I mean by benchmarks? Well, some of you know that I got my, uh, I received my college degree in civil engineering. And so one summer, I did an internship with a civil engineering company here in Augusta. And my job for the summer was to survey. I was a surveyor. And so what we would do is a few guys would go out with, with some equipment, and we would determine boundary markers or we would set up new boundary markers for new construction, or we would uh, lay out some topography, we would figure out the surface area and how land laid and, and the elevation and whatnot. But the first thing you would do is we would go out to a job site, we would look for a benchmark. You know, a benchmark is a, is a permanent fixture somewhere, and they're usually, they're around, but you probably wouldn't notice them, but they're around here or there, but they're, they're in places that are very permanent. Maybe it's a, a stake or an iron pole that was driven deeply into the earth, or maybe it's on a you know, huge rock or some type of immovable object. And that benchmark, it already has its elevation determined relative to sea level. And so if you can, if you can latch onto this benchmark, then you can figure out the elevation of the things around you using different tools and whatnot. And so it's very important for you to get a benchmark in, other, in, in order to figure out 
the lay of the land and how to measure it. And so a benchmark is a very permanent, fixed site that you can really grasp onto and it really helps you to know where you are, how high you are, and gives you something to work with to figure out your surroundings. And what John is going to do is he's going to give us two benchmarks. And these two benchmarks are two events. He's going to give us one that's in the future. And then he's going to give us one that's in the past. And the first benchmark that he gives us is the future coming of Christ. Look at verse 28 again. He says, And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. And so the first benchmark He gives us is the future coming of Christ. And this is going to help us to figure out how we should live now. And so He says, when He appears, the question is, will you approach Him with confidence or will you withdraw out of shame when Christ returns? Now think of it this way. Think about a soldier who is off in battle for months, even perhaps years, and his family is at home. Now, when, when the soldier comes home, how do you think the children and the wife, how do you think they're going to react? Well, obviously, they're going to they're run to him. They're going to run to the soldier. They're going to run to the husband. They're going to run to the father. And they're going to embrace him. And he's going to embrace them. Because they're going to run confidently towards him because they know that he wants them to run to him. You know, he, he, he invites them in. They know that he wants them to come to him. And so as he gets off the plane or whatever it may be, they're going to confidently... Just run to Him and embrace Him. And so the question is, when, when Jesus returns, you know, do you believe that He wants you to run to Him? Do, do you believe that He wants you to confidently come to Him? Well, you may ask, well, Ron, where does this confidence come from? How can I have that type of confidence? Well, John's going to give us two truths that give us confidence as we anticipate Jesus' return, the first truth is the love that the Father has shown us. Look at verse 1. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So those of us who have faith in Christ, we should have confidence in approaching God, both now and, and when Christ returns, because of the love that has been shown to us in Christ. In other words, we have been brought into the family of God through the love of God, through what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And so we've been brought into the family of God, initiated by the love of God. And therefore, when Christ returns, we can approach Him with confidence. We don't need to draw back in shame if we are truly children of God. <clears throat> Now, the second truth is that the Father's love has been not only shown to us in Christ, but it's been sown in us. Look at verses 29 and then 2 and 3. He writes, If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know 
that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So if you have received Christ by faith, then this, this transforming love of God has been placed in you and it, it begins to work out in you a certain family likeness. So if you are in Christ, the love of God has made it possible for you to be in the family and the love of God in Christ helps you to become more Christ-like. In other words, you begin to show and manifest the family likeness. And there's a security that comes along with seeing that take place in your life. You know, there's, a, there's an assurance that comes along with knowing that you're changing and you're becoming more like Christ. You know, when someone says to you that you remind them of their grandfather or someone in their family that was highly respected... How does that make you feel? If, everyone's, if anyone's ever told you that, you, know, you remind me of your grandfather or your grandmother, how does that make you feel? Yeah, it, it makes you feel a sense of belonging. It gives you even a stronger sense of identity. You know, it's not that you didn't know you were in the family. You were in the family. You know that. But when, when someone tells you that, maybe it's a friend or maybe it's another relative that says, you know, you remind me a lot of your grandfather." Someone that was very respected. It just gives you that sense of, I know I'm a part of the family, but you know, that's just even a, a greater sense of belonging and identity because I'm, I'm beginning to show characteristics that were shown by a, a man that everybody respected or a woman that people respected. And so it gives you that sense of belonging and security in the family. And here we see that if we're in Christ, you know, we, should become, we should be becoming more and more like Christ. And then when Christ returns, we will be like Him. John says, I'm not real sure all the ins and outs of what exactly that's going to be like. But I do know this. When He returns, when He appears, you who are in Christ will be like Him. And John is saying, even now, you can start being like Him. And that's how you can be assured that you, you have saving faith if, if you are seeing this family likeness being brought out. And so, this first benchmark He gives us is the, is the future coming of Christ. And this helps us to see whose child we are and how we are anticipating this future coming. You know, is there confidence thinking about when Christ comes back or... Is there this sense of shame that I, I just I'm not ready or I don't want him to come back? You know, as the as the day draws near in Christ's return, are we seeing this family likeness in us or you know, are we not? And so that's the first benchmark is the the future coming of Christ. The second benchmark is the first coming of Christ. The question is here, you know. Why did Jesus first appear? And John's going to answer that question and he's going to help us to see you must grasp this benchmark 
if you're going to be Christ-like. So, why did Christ first appear? Look at verses 4 and 5. John says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. So first He says, Sin is lawlessness. Sin is a a defiant disregard for the law of God. In other words, it's, it's it's going against what your Father has asked you to do. You know, it's, it's disobeying God. It's going against God. But it's not only this, this defiant disobedience of God's law. That's not all it is. One scholar says it like this. He says, to commit sin is to place oneself on the side of the devil and the Antichrist and to stand in opposition to Christ. So not only is sin just defying God's law and going against God, but it's also taking sides. Either you're aligning yourself with God's side in Christ, or you're aligning yourself with the devil. And we know that it's because of our sin that we're separated from God. And John says, therefore, the Son of God came in the flesh to what? Take away sin. We needed that to happen. Or we would never be able to align ourselves with God without the sacrifice of Christ. So so here's John's argument. He says in this passage that, that from the beginning, the devil has been in opposition to God. And we see that even back in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3. From the beginning, the devil has been in opposition of God. Therefore, everything in the world that stands in opposition to God is of the devil. And this includes my sin and this includes your sin. So when you make choices that are against God, you're siding with the devil, is what John's saying here. And Jesus came to destroy the opposition to God. It says that He he came to take away sins and He came to destroy the works of the devil, which makes sense, right? God is setting up His kingdom, His people. Well, what does He need to do to do that? Well, He needs to destroy the opposition. He needs to put down that which is against King Jesus. And so, Jesus comes not only to take away the sin, but to defeat the devil. And that's exactly what He did. And therefore, John's argument goes like this. If you abide in Jesus, then you will not align yourself with the devil. Makes sense. If you align yourself with Jesus and you're about what Jesus is about, then you're not going to align yourself with the devil and what he's about, i.e. sin. So if you abide in Jesus, then you will not sin. And abiding in Jesus means that you are for what Jesus is for, and you're against what Jesus is against. So in other words, you will not carry out the works of the devil if you are, if you are aligning yourself with the one who came to destroy the works of the devil. Now this is strong language, but this is, this is, I think this is in verse 8 here. John says, if you practice sin, then you are of the devil. Be encouraged. <laughs> That's strong language, I know. If you practice sin, you are of the devil. There's no middle ground. Either you're living for Christ, 
or you're living for the devil. Now, I know this sounds very dogmatic. And, and I know we would like to think, okay, here's the way I'd like to think about it. There, there is this one group of people that are living for Christ. And then there's a really small group of people that are living for the devil. And most of mankind kind of just falls somewhere in the middle. But that's not how John breaks it down for us. He doesn't give us the luxury of this third middle category. He just says, you know, there's really two categories. Those who are abiding in Christ, living for Christ, and those who are living for the devil. These are the two categories he gives us. You know, think of it like this. When someone gets married, you expect them to stop dating. Right? <laughs> when someone gets married, you expect them to stop dating. Why? Well, because marriage by nature does not, does not allow it. It doesn't make room for dating other people. Because, because marriage is a commitment to give one and only one person that which only you as a spouse can give. So you can't give it out to other people. You know, the Bible has a term for that. It's called adultery. It's, I'm giving away something that belongs only to my spouse. And so... When you place your faith in Christ, you give your life to Christ and Christ alone. And John is saying that you cannot have faith in Christ and continue to date the world. This would be incompatible. I just want to read a few verses that describe this incompatibility. Verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Verse 6. No one who abides in Him, meaning Jesus, no one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as He is righteous. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. And verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So this forces the question upon us, whose child are we? You know, whose Father, do we have? You know, what family likeness do people see in us? You know, would they be able to see that, in fact, you are, you are a child of God? Now, I know you're, you may be saying, Ron, you know, John, John sounds somewhat unrealistic here. You know, is, is he saying that if I'm a Christian, then I will not sin? Think of it this way. Let's say someone you know came to you and they said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about you know, dating someone. and I want, I, want, I want to hear from you, you know, what should I be looking for in a husband? 
Now, what are you going to say? Well, you're going to start listing out all these qualities, you know, and characteristics, and you're going to be talking about all these great things that this man should be. And we can all do this to some degree, right? We can all kind of lay out, okay, this is what an ideal husband should be like. Now, the problem is, once you give that advice, and then she leaves and goes and she tries to find this person... (laughs) She's going to be hard-pressed to find it, right? Because even though we can list out, okay, yeah, a husband should be these things, we know that no one can always live up to those things, right? And so it's going to be difficult to find that ideal, that ideal mate. And I, I believe here, though, that John is being very clear that in this passage that, that sinning is incompatible with abiding in Christ. And he is telling us that it is God's intent that we were meant not to, to sin. And that's, that he's moving us in that direction. And I believe that John is describing the ideal which will one day be our reality when Jesus returns. That in fact we will be without sin. And we will be able to always joyfully choose not to sin and choose to be with Christ and do what he wants all the time. However... Our current reality is one in which temptation still flourishes and the potential of sin is still there. And even John himself tells us in the first chapter that he who says he does not have any sin deceives himself and the truth is not in him. And then in chapter 2 he says, if you do have sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous One. And so, although we see in this, in this letter as a whole that John does say that it's possible for Christians to sin, I still believe we need to allow the weight of these words to rest on us for a moment so that we can see the seriousness of sin. Because there were some among the churches in that day that were discounting the seriousness of sin. Saying that it really doesn't matter. If you're in Christ, it doesn't really matter what you do. And John is saying it it does matter. It does matter what you do. Sin is very serious. Yes, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the Righteous One. Yes, if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But yet sin, at the same time, is very, very serious. You know, sin is not just making a mistake or having a weak moment or having a lapse in judgment. You know, sin is not okay because we're tired or we're angry or we're hungry or we're sleepy or we're stressed. Sin is actually aligning yourself with the devil. So when I choose to sin, I choose at that moment to align myself with the devil. It's a very serious Act, And John is saying there, there are just two camps, there are two kingdoms, there are two families. There's the family of the world whose father is the devil, and then there's the family of God whose father is God. And so he gives us these two benchmarks to help us keep our bearing and figure out where we need to be in the midst of the first and the second coming of Christ. He points us to the future coming of Christ. To give us hope that one day we will be like Christ without sin. 
And yet he also then points us back to the past, to Christ's first coming, in order to give us confidence that because of what Christ has done for us on our behalf, if we place our faith in Christ, then we have all that we need through the power of the Holy Spirit to align ourselves with Christ now. These two, these two benchmarks, the future coming of Christ and the first coming of Christ, they help orient us to how we should live our lives and how we should view sin. These two benchmarks help us to see you know, what type of family likeness we can possess if we have faith in Christ. And so what do, what do people see in you? When they see you, when they are around you. Now we all have weak moments at times and we choose wrongly. But if someone were to be around you for a period of time, would they see the likeness of your Father in you? John is saying, if you're in Christ, through the power of the Spirit, we can actually choose what Christ would choose and align ourselves with with what God is doing in the world. Let us pray. Lord, we come to You this morning as we read these Scriptures that are very simple in that they are direct and yet at the same time they are very weighty. As I read over these over and over again, over these past few weeks, my heart was burdened at how many times I aligned myself with the devil rather than you. And I confess that. And Lord, I pray if anyone here is feeling the weight of their sin, God, would they, could they come to Christ even now and lay their burden, lay this weight at your feet, knowing that you have done all that has been required to take away all our sin, past, present, and future, so that we can be children of God. Lord, I pray that we would see the seriousness of sin and simultaneously that we would see and experience the freedom that comes with knowing Christ. Lord, would you make this group of people dynamic in this city in in the way that they manifest Christ-likeness so that people can get a better idea of who Jesus is and so that many more can be called children of God. And we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as we have read God's Word together this morning, If it has been clear to you that you're not a child of God, then I invite you this morning to place your faith in Christ. And perhaps you'd like to join this church. Maybe you want to link arms with a community of people who are seeking to know Christ and make Him known. I invite you to do that this morning. But whatever your response may be, I'll be at the front to meet you as we stand and sing our closing hymn.